This is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks, highlights from our recent interviews, a second chance to hear what our hosts have selected as the best discussion in recent days. On our program today, hear from Andrea O'Sullivan from the Partnership for the Public Good. Also, Dr. Tim Murphy looks at the racist roots of bad health on the East Side. Duncan Kirkwood on being black in Buffalo, and the Reverend Diane Holt on the elephant in the room. For African Americans, it's not an elephant in the room. It's a T-Rex, and it's devouring anything that's black and brown. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Thank you for being with us. We begin today with Andrea O'Sullivan from the Partnership for the Public Good. And one of the issues, there have been a lot of issues, obviously, that we've heard about since May 14th, but one that seems to continue to swirl through is the how is the city of Buffalo going to use this public property that they have at their disposal? We're talking about vacant lots, uh, things, uh, pieces of property that have been uh, given up by its previous owners for a variety of reasons, of course. And there has been, you can hear this in many different conversations with a lot of different perspectives about the concern there is inside some of those east side neighborhoods that we've really been focusing on here. So let's get into that because that is the number one thing on your community agenda, the uh, utilization of public land for public benefit. What's the focus or what was the focus when it came to the agenda? That's right. So thank you. So for many years, we've heard this issue um, from our partners who in the past were able to access vacant lots to build affordable housing, to create community gardens. And a few years ago, we started to hear across the board, it's getting harder for us as community groups or as nonprofits to access these these lots and especially to buy them so that we are able to keep up this good work for, for years ahead. Um, and so this last year, a, a task force formed that uh, is led by Grassroots Gardens of Western New York, several block clubs um, like the Greater Eastside Fields of Dreams Block Club, Coppertown Block Club, Filmer Forward, a a lot of east of Main Street, and then uh, more garden groups as well. And they came together to say... You know, the city still holds uh, about 8,000 lots. 8,000. 8,000, which are publicly owned. We we sometimes call them city-owned, but they are city-held, publicly-owned lots. And what's going to happen to those? Can we work with residents, community groups, and nonprofits to have really a plan led by neighborhoods and residents of what will happen with this mass amount of publicly owned land within the city. Um, those lots are concentrated in the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood with quite a few significant amounts also in the Maston district and some in the Ellicott district. Um, and Many of these lots have already had community garden projects, youth projects, um, other, you know, food growing efforts that are led by local residents for years. And in some cases, um, the gardens now in the network of grassroots gardens have been maintained by residents, by senior citizens for maybe 20, 25 years. People that are beautifying their neighborhoods. That's right. Rather than have an empty lot, which we know can end up with grass uh, growing all over the place and all other yes, types of problems. Yes, and we see a lot of complaints about that. And I think our city council members receive a lot of complaints about that to their offices. So we should be really grateful that these community groups are already doing the work of beautifying their neighborhoods, of doing this maintenance. And so the question is, 
can they now gain ownership over this land? And that's where I think it raises some of the justice and segregation and ownership issues that May 14th has also raised when we look at how did we end up in such a segregated city. Um, you know, this is an issue where we should recognize the the work, the years of value that neighborhood residents have put into this land and create a process where community gardens and nonprofits can purchase the land that they're working from the city so that they don't have to worry that it will be sold out from under them. Um, that's the fear is, you know, the, these lots, again, there are 8,000 lots, so there are many, right. many available for development, but these lots that community folks already have an interest in, can they purchase that to make sure um, it's not going to be, you know, suddenly sold off and taken away as such an important community space? I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot here, mm. but we do see in the Fruit Belt, the uh, uh, Fruit Belt uh, Community Land Trust. Yes. Can you walk us through that a little bit, how that might model might be able to work in other parts of the city? Because it sounds, again, kind of what we're getting into here, the idea that, this is public property. This belongs to the people of Buffalo. How can they determine how it would best help them? And is there, are there lessons in, in the Fruit Belt that we could maybe apply elsewhere? Yeah, that's a good question. And the Fruit Belt Land Trust has participated in this uh, public land task force as well. And, you know, in Buffalo, we have, I think, two great examples of land trust, Grassroots Gardens as a community garden land trust and the Fruit Belt as one that is working toward being a housing uh, land trust, uh, which is really focused on, again, uh, residents have been in the Fruit Belt in some cases for generations as the medical campus developed, as the city becomes more economically prosperous. Are those long-term residents going to lose their homes because the neighborhood becomes less affordable to live in? Taxes go up. It's harder to, to be there. Um, or are they going to be able to stay? And so the land trust came together. Um, so many of our partners were involved and led on that effort um, from Open Buffalo, Push Buffalo. Many partners uh, came together and created the Fruit Belt Land Trust. Um, and I think they are in a real active conversation over the years of whether that could be applied to other parts of the city. Um, so it could be interesting to have them on to talk about that more as well. Right. Um, but certainly we see in other cities that that is a model that can be followed um, to put more and more of the vacant land either into public trust or into nonprofit and community ownership to make sure that it is used for public purpose and not only sold for private development. Um, and again, in a city where we have 8,000 lots, we're not saying no private development by any stretch. Right. We're saying set aside a rather small percentage of that 8,000 lots for public purpose. At the same time, of course, the partnership is trying to, I think, and doing a nice job of getting everybody involved and making sure that there's appropriate pressure perhaps placed on certain parts of government or, or wherever you want to point the blame when it comes to things not moving along as quickly as we'd like. At the same time, it seems obvious that this land should be for the public benefit. Can you take us through as best you'd understand it, and I know I'm asking you to maybe speak for others, but what are the roadblocks? What are the roadblocks to keep this from happening? What, what do you understand? Um, you know, the roadblocks, I think there's a few different parts of city government involved. There's different departments to engage. Um, and then I think there is just a question of imagination. Do we imagine 
that these neighborhood residents uh, can take care of these lots themselves. And to be frank, that's one hesitation that I have heard um, is, will these folks be able to care for this land in the long term? Um, You know, almost is there enough trust in our neighborhood residents to move this land to their control. Um, And that certainly is discouraging because, as I've shared in many of these cases, uh, these neighborhood residents have already been leading the way, doing this work, transforming lots, in fact, saving the city quite a lot of money, uh, maintaining them each year. Um, And there's a study I don't have with me, but that um, Samina Raja of the Buffalo Food Lab did a few years ago for Grassroots Gardens that added up the sweat equity, you know, how much right. were these gardeners actually saving the city um, by putting in this amount of beautiful work each year. Um, so I think it's both uh, practical issues of how would this be done? How have other cities done it? We have a lot of that research to share. Um, and then it's also kind of a question of, of will and imagination. Um, you know, who do we believe deserves to have ownership, deserves to have a say in what happens in their neighborhood? Um, and that's something certainly that this effort, and as you've seen, the, the Fruit Belt Land Trust have in common by really saying it's the long-term residents who should have the strongest voice in setting the future of the places where they live. I know I may be jumping the gun a little Mm. bit in terms of uh, the the community agenda, but I think we're tying into something else that I'm also hearing a little bit about. The imagination that the east side, all this money that's going into the central terminal project, the the changing of the Kensington, it looks like it's coming, that all of a sudden we're going to see a gentrified portion of the uh, east side of Buffalo that is going to perhaps, you know, outpace the the income of of many of those community members again back to the idea that we have this public land available um that could be used for the public benefit how what is that a, i guess a a justified concern and b are there policies that we can do in advance to keep that from happening mm. again i mean everybody wants to see the city improve we don't want to see poor people getting pushed out of their homes that's right so You know, I think that's always happens when you have big investment coming in. Um, There's nothing like big outside money to distort the plans that residents have had, um, you know, to to bring a lot of questions in. On the other hand, um, you know, reform in those areas that you mentioned is something that many community groups have wanted for years. So I think it comes down to who will get the say on what happens at a place like the Central Terminal or what happens to the expressway. Um, Will it be outside consultants and, you know, experts? We talk a lot about experts in public policy work, um, but who are the real experts? Is it outsiders that we bring in who maybe have done this elsewhere? Or is it folks who live in the neighborhood, who walk that land every day, um, who have spoken with a few generation of kids of what they would like to see Um, You know, so we really try to redefine who is an expert, who has knowledge that matters and make sure that those folks are being listened to um, at all levels. So, yeah, I I don't live east of Main Street, and I would certainly defer to the leaders there and the community groups and block clubs there for the vision that they have Um, and also for you know, the current conflict of this is great to have such an influx of money, but it does raise concerns for how it will be realized over the years. And uh, before we uh, go to a break, we're going to take a time out here in just a little bit. But just um, from your perspective uh, with the Partnership for Public Good, are you encouraged by the level of participation that you've been seeing? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think it was so interesting in 2020, like everyone else, we shifted to working remotely um, for a community network to lose in-person conversation, community meetings, community dialogue in person was a really big deal. We never saw more participation than in that year. And of course, the summer of 2020 um, with the mass calls for racial justice and police reform. Um, and that has really continued, I think, for us and for many of our partners and block clubs, we see um, such a hunger, perhaps the pandemic helped us to see how important uh, neighbor-to-neighbor conversation and exchanges, and we see really more participation than ever. I'm getting us bogged down at item number one on an eleven-point <laughs> community agenda. But we're no going to take a we're going to take a time out and come back uh, with more. Our guest is uh, Andrea O'Sullivan. She is the executive director of the Partnership for the Public Good. We're talking about their community agenda. This is Buffalo. What's next? With us from the Partnership for Public Good is their executive director, Andrea O'Sullivan. Thanks very much uh, for joining us here. Uh, we got, I wouldn't say bogged down on the on item number one in your community agenda, but I think the, the public land for public benefit it just ties so much into mm. so much of what we've been hearing about recently. But there's more. And I think it just as interesting, that was the number one. And again, this was an agenda that was set uh, with your process late last year and introduced this year. But number two, a cultural plan. It's interesting to go from the, what seems like two very disparate uh, items on there, but yet a cultural plan is something that's very important to the people who had input on this. That's right. And our partners for several years have, have voted in an arts-related priority. Um, I think many of our partners really see um, the arts and, and culture as central to the vibrancy of our city and our neighborhoods. Um, and certainly as folks that do what we call a lot of the frontline work in our communities, um, you know, to have artists as part of our policy work, to have their creative expression as part of our work is really uh, critical for us. Yeah. Uh, and so when we look at what type of plan is wanted, what what it was missing before, I mean, it does seem like there's a certain amount of money that is spent on culturals. I think maybe the, uh, the federal government has actually kicked in some part of the American Rescue Plan as well. So it seems like there's I wouldn't say plenty of money. I'm sure every culture out there mm. is saying we could use more. I understand that. But that being stated, what is missing beyond just more money? Right. So this issue was brought to us by a big network of um, art art organizations across Western New York. Um, the big museums are part of it, uh, theaters, and our leading partners on this are Just Buffalo Literary Center and Road Less Traveled Productions. Um, and they would like to see, you know, every year... There's certain funding from the city for the arts, but it's it's extremely variable. Some years there's not very much. Um, a lot of it goes, in fact, to the maintenance of the arts-related buildings that the city owns. So okay. where they do budget for the arts, it's expensive to keep up, um, you know, theater buildings and, and things that the city owns. So often not too much of that is actually getting down to some of our small and grassroots arts organizations that work, again, at the neighborhood level. So there's a core belief then among your partners that getting artists, compensating them or helping them to be compensated is key critical to the to the overall uh, quality of life in the city. Absolutely, Buffalo. absolutely. And we've worked with another group called Frontline Arts Buffalo um, on previous agendas that focuses on getting more support 
to um, frontline arts groups that are most impacted by racial and economic injustice. Um, This year's is really saying, how can we come together, city and county government, to make sure that there's a long-term and comprehensive plan to support small, mid-sized, and grassroots arts organizations? And, you know, primary is, of course, the art and creativity and culture that artists and these organizations create. And it's also critical to remember um, that many of these organizations have been around for decades and they provide in their neighborhoods, um, such as Locust Street Art and Ujima Theater, um, decades of youth programs, again, a really important space for um, young people, but really people of all ages from that neighborhood to gather and to benefit. Um, we've had some folks who, uh, you know, they went through Ujima Theater Youth uh, programs 30 years ago. Now their children are in those programs. And so providing this important space of belonging, safe space for young people to gather and creativity, in some cases for generations of Buffalo residents. Um, These organizations often face really variable funding and don't know how they will thrive from year to year, let's say. And so to to have something more predictable for them to feel um, as a city and county, we value not only the art that they're creating, but really the public service that they're providing and serving residents um, and for them to know that that's going to be supported with public funds. Uh, to date, you know, we're here now in August. Um, the agenda was uh, released mm. in uh, January. Um, any uh, what's any progress on the on the front of uh, number two there? Cultural funding. We have made some progress. We've had some good uh, meetings with the city on that. We are also working on um, last year in the American Rescue Plan federal stimulus funding. Um, the city actually set aside in the plan two million dollars for a frontline arts fund. Um, which would support both organizations and individuals. That money was in the plan, um, but has not been allocated or transferred yet. So, you know, it's always so it a in, lot. it was in the plan on the federal level? Um, that the city put together. The mayor's administration put together with that federal money. So we'd love to see that move forward. Um, so we're in conversations about that, too. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You smiled when you said we're in conversations. Yeah, I was just for us as a at Partnership for the Public Good, we've got a large network, but a pretty small team. Um, uh-huh. So each year we pick 10 issues. But very often, of course, we have to keep following up on the implementation of any victories from the previous year's agenda. So that's one we're still um, following up on for sure. But this is something, um, yeah, that I that I hope to see moving forward. Too. So there, so but the the good news is there is a little more money available. Um, the maybe uh, so-so news, uh, half half full uh, glass news <laughs> is that it's not quite there yet. The things can be slow moving um, in government work for sure. Is that and part so, of what for you and uh, your group is understanding that? That things aren't ever going to move as fast as you want them to. Most certainly, I'm sure a lot of your partners want to, to see move. Absolutely. And, you know, if you, you can, again, go on our website at ppgbuffalo.org, you can actually look back at many years of this agenda that so many partners have voted in. And what you'll see, for example, um, is probably the last four or five years at least There is a priority around language access and improving interpretation and translation as our neighbors and residents um, who are speakers of other languages increase. Why does that keep being on every year, right? Um, Well, we haven't yet seen the full progress that we want. Sometimes we'll see incremental things. Buffalo Public 
uh, police department adopts a language access plan, but can we get the city as a whole to do it? So they'll come back and and pitch that on again. Um, So we would certainly like to see more progress, but I think a critical role that our partner network plays is to keep the public attention on issues like this. You know in the media how quick (laughs) attention spans are. Um, So we could win a commitment for frontline arts, but if we don't keep coming back and saying, thank you for committing $2 million, but where is that money? That could easily be forgotten. And, you know, our public officials can say, it's great, we've done it, we've declared it, it's going to happen. And without uh, watchdog groups and partners like ours coming back and saying, thank you for that commitment, but in fact, this has not been implemented yet, a lot of progressive policy would just be lost in Buffalo and, and everywhere that's the case. Andrea O'Sullivan is the executive director at the Partnership for Public Good, speaking with WBFO's Jay Moran. And now WBFO's Dave Debo with Dr. Tim Murphy from the University at Buffalo's Health Equity Research Institute on all the myriad of problems that keep Eastside residents from being healthy. The social determinants of health. So it is poverty. It's substandard housing. It's food insecurity. It's access to quality education. It's neighborhoods. It's access to healthy foods. All of these things, each one of them contributes to those tremendous health disparities that exist in our black population. So it's not really any one condition. Um, If I have diabetes, it's because I have a sugar problem. Um, If I have heart disease, it's probably because of, I don't know, something genetic or my diet. Um, As you look at all these disparities, it's not necessarily anything that can be pinned down to a specific medical condition. You're talking more broadly. Exactly. Exactly. Those are the underlying systemic problems. Let's think about a, a diabetic person who goes, sees, uh, sees his, his physician, okay? And, and uh, the, the doctor says, okay, uh, your diabetes is a little bit out of control. You're a little bit overweight. Uh, you need to do a couple of things. One, you need to eat healthier food. Less sugar, control the sugar, uh, less processed food, more fresh, more fresh vegetables and more fresh food. And you need to get exercise. You should be walking each day, for example, or, or figure out a way to get exercise. And, and then sends, the, sends this uh, gentleman home and home into a neighborhood where there is no access to healthy food. Uh, think about the tops on the east side of Buffalo. That top serves 70,000 people, one grocery store. So, so the chances of it always having fresh apples and fresh grapes is smaller than a place that's serving fewer people. Exactly. And also, healthy food, unfortunately, is more expensive than unhealthy food. Uh, and when you're trying to stretch your, your income, uh, it's easier and, and, and it's more economical to buy, uh, to buy unhealthy food. Then the exercise. Okay. Have you looked at some of the, some of the sidewalks in the neighborhoods mm. in the east sides? They are unwalkable. Uh, it would be dangerous for an elderly person to be, you know, to go out walking, uh, with, with the uneven, uh, with, with the uneven sidewalks and so forth. So, so when you think about there's the diabetes, there are the solutions to the diabetes. And then what are the barriers to the solutions? They're not medicine or, or anything. They're, they're really, the neighborhood and the living conditions. And to me, that's the interesting part because 
I would have expected you as a clinician to say, oh, there is a certain risk factor here or something, something clinical, something mm-hmm. medical. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about these social determinants, you're talking much more broadly about the things that go on in the community. I was trained as a physician uh, decades ago. And and if you had asked me decades ago when I was a medical student, you know, what's what's causing that? I said, well, it's access to health care. We've got to make sure to sure. get these folks health care. You know, the, 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 the bad news is I didn't know back then. The better news is that if you look at the way we are training our health care providers now, boy, medical students are learning different things than I learned, and medical students have a whole different approach to this. It's very encouraging to me, actually. Uh, and I think this is the kinds of things that will contribute to, to to changing some of these systemic barriers that we have. So these days they're being taught that things like housing is a public health issue. Is it a doctor's job to solve housing? Well, it's a doctor's job to be aware of the impact of housing on health and and also to adjust how we manage our patients in that context. And quite frankly, as humans and as compassionate healthcare providers, yes, it is our job okay. to figure it out. You know whether that's contributing to some other effort that's going on to be aware to our, to impact how we vote for elected leaders. You know these are the kinds of things that we as healthcare providers and we as fellow citizens need to be aware of. That's how we're going to make these changes. Close the loop for me here. The things you have described could theoretically be something that happens in any poor community. Why do we say that this is specifically an African-American thing, and I guess more specifically in the segregated east side of Buffalo? Well, let's look at how the east side of Buffalo ended up segregated. Uh, It was redlining, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's happened in communities all over the country. So this is not an accident, the fact that black people have these tremendous health disparities. This is... This is built into our system. You know, if you put all the black people in one neighborhood or one area and then banks agree we are not going to give loans for these and banks agree that the property values of those of those areas will be devalued. I mean, that's in our system, and and in a way, it's not that people think that. Oh, you're blaming me. You know, I think I think there now currently there are there are folks who who do not behave in a racist way, but but still, our systems are, have created these these inequities. These are not accidents. This is part of what's happened. Uh, in in the way that our system has been made. As a doctor, or as even, I'll, I'll, I'll use the title again, you're the head of the UB Community Health Equity Research Institute. What can you do to change that systemic stuff? Uh, again, I, I sort of think of the role of a doctor as treat the people. Well, as a as a healthcare provider, you you got to do that. You 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 need to provide the best possible care that you can provide. And then you ask me as uh, director of the Community Health Equity Research Institute, you know, what what can I do? And this is where, you know, again, my growth as in my understanding of this from when I was trained as a healthcare provider, as a medical student to now, what we need to do, <clears throat> and particularly 
what 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 I want to do with this institute is leverage the talent and the resources of our university of the University of Buffalo. We have twelve schools in the University of Buffalo. We got to think beyond providing health care, so we need to engage the the talent and the expertise of people, for example, in the School of Law for the inequities in the criminal justice system in the Graduate School of Education for the inequities in education and educational opportunity for in the School of Architecture and Planning for the neighborhoods and for urban planning and so forth uh, and in in the School of Social Work and the School of Engineering, for example, for some of the uh, some, some of the, so we, we may be able to come up with technologies that will begin to help us with these. We're talking about all the health problems that spring from all the community problems that spring from racism on the east side. Uh, these are, these are uh, uh, race-based health inequities that we're talking about. Uh, so let's talk about public policy a little bit. Segregation is certainly an issue. Make the corollary to health. So if, if we think about uh, uh, the condition of the east side, can I talk about the redlining and how those uh, the, 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 the houses were devalued? And then that's where, by our systems, black people live. And when you walk through those neighborhoods and look at the conditions of the neighborhood, uh, that is an unhealthy place to live. So, for example, uh, 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 many homes in Buffalo still have lead paint. Many homes in Buffalo still have lead pipes. That means our children in our community uh, are being exposed to uh, to lead. And, and this causes serious problems in terms of development and intellectual development and, 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 and lead toxicity. Uh, but is that a segregation thing? Is that a racial thing? That, so it's a racial thing in that it is the, the, the east side was created by racism. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the east side is predominantly uh, black. Uh, and and uh, again, by design. How do we combat it? Is it just a matter of, uh, forgive me for putting it so bluntly, um, more white folks from Orchard Park visiting the east side to eat the ribs at a restaurant that they've never been to, more interaction, more things that would uh, get rid of segregation? Am I oversimplifying? What else could be done? Well, what we need to do is invest in these neighborhoods, and we need to make sure that the money that is investing goes to the people uh, who live on the east side. We need to build some wealth on the east side of Buffalo, for, for example. I mean, Tops is great, and you know, I, I have to I have to uh, uh, compliment Tops, and that it's the only grocery store there. The profits are not going to the east side. You know, uh, their jobs that creates jobs for folks on the east side. But what we need is is uh, owned and operated by East Side residents is what has to happen. Dr. Tim Murphy directs UB's Health Equity Research Institute. This is Buffalo What's Next, our producer picks program, highlighting recent discussions. Stay with us. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to WNED.org slash vehicles. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. Adirondacks. Canadian Rockies by Rail. Chautauqua, an American narrative. And so much more to watch. 
The very best of WNED-PBS, now available on YouTube. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. This is Producers Picks, our weekly recap of the best interviews on Buffalo, What's Next? Let's dive back into it with Duncan Kirkwood, talking to me about resilient communities earlier this week. Resilience is about, you know, grit, uh, about the ability to persevere through difficult times. Uh, And that's what uh, most people think of. They have this thought association where resilience means bounce back, right? Bounce back like a a tennis ball will bounce back. That's Mm -hmm. how you should be with tough times. But what I train people on when I talk about resilience is that resilience really means understanding that failures and setbacks, challenges are actually a part of your journey. So it's a mindset change that when you when you mess up or when it doesn't work out, when you're going through something extremely difficult and you don't know if you can make it, understanding that that thing that you're going through is actually helping you. That's why you can't quit. So some of the ethos I teach people that are, are you always put your goal first. You never accept defeat. You never quit. But that just means you know you're going to face challenges. You know you're going to face defeat. But you decide to keep going because you don't know how the story is going to end. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how I think about resilience. Why is it important to teach kids resilience? So, you know, it's funny you ask that because I think with kids, I, when I went into the work of teaching young people to build resilience so they can, you know, persevere through school and difficult times so they can go to college or career or job or military and have a, a better life, a more successful life. But as I'm dealing with more and more kids, I'm finding kids are already resilient. They just don't really know it, right? And so they hide their setbacks. They, they view them as shame. Mm-hmm. They feel like things they go through make them less than other kids. They live a life of comparison, and that's how they build their self-esteem is through comparison. So anything that's bad, they try to hide or, or they, they push it away. And I'm trying to – so what I've started to teach kids is, no, you're already resilient. You've already been through storms after storms. You've already dealt with this and that and this. So you just have to understand that because you went through that, you're stronger, and now we need to identify that so you own that power and redirect it in a way to create the life that you want. So with our young people, it's important because school is difficult, yeah. right, especially if you're already two grades behind, if you already can't read on grade level, and as you move into different subjects – you have to read at a higher level in order to learn, but you can't do that because you're having trouble reading or you're barely literate. So, yes, resilience is, is important because it, it helps them matriculate through school. But we got to understand that school and being successful in the classroom isn't just about grades. It's also about growing in character, growing in your belief for yourself and the life that you want, creating a, a vision for what you want. So there are psychological impacts for and with resiliency in this method of self-help. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, when you believe, when you, let me, let me just say it like this. Once you look at your life, if we all did that, if you, if anybody listening would just take a second, right. And you might be going through a hard time or you might uh, be dealing, you might say, well, why don't I have the promotion? Why am I still here? Or why am I not married? Or I didn't get, I, I don't have a bigger house or whatever it is for you. If you look back at your life, you take an honest moment and think, was there a time where you faced a really bad challenge or you went through something really difficult or it hurt in the moment? Mm -hmm. But then months later, you look back and say, I'm glad that happened because this, right? Like I was in an abusive relationship and because I endured it and I got out of it, 
now I'm with somebody better. Or because I had to fix my credit to get a home and it took years to fix it, but I worked and worked and worked. And when I finally fixed it, not only did I get a home, but I could open a business now because I had a better line of credit or whatever. Like if everybody does a reflection on a tough time you went through that actually led to something better, it will make you think the next time you go through a tough time, oh, wait, there's a thought association with tough time to something better. So, but okay, but you have to. But a few of our past guests have have talked about certainly the need to be resilient. Um, but how particular is that a good thing? Because it means that the resiliency is rooted in trauma. It's rooted in experiencing trauma. Um, one could argue certainly that. You could try not to experience that trauma, and then your resi- that is your resiliency, being able to avoid those things. But there are certain things in life that you can't avoid, right? Yeah, so that's a great – ma'am, that is a great point. All right, let me let me start right. You know, like so. There, there, there's the con, and, and what you're saying is this concept that if we're selling our black communities or any, let's just focus on our black communities here. We're saying as a community, we need to be strong. We need to be resilient, mm-hmm. right? What you're saying is we need to prepare to continue to be oppressed. Yeah, exactly. So, so why are we doing this? Exactly. And that is a thousand percent right. If you're telling our communities we got to be resilient, y'all, we got to be strong. Then in fact, you're saying. Prepare to continue to be oppressed, prepare to continue to be marginalized and just get better at dealing with being oppressed and marginalized. And that's not a healthy thing that we should have to live in, deal with. That's not, you know, equal opportunity. That's not liberty and justice for all. That's not everyone gets a fair shake. That's right. That's that's not that. And so. Maybe our, and some people would say our focus should be not trying to be stronger and more resilient, but dismantling the systems that are causing us to have to be oppressed. But I don't think it's a one or the other. I think it's a yes and because in in a dream world, we are dismantling systems and we're totally transforming what it looks like to be black on the east side of Buffalo and grow up, which I did in the inner city in a poor neighborhood. Uh-huh. And we're, we're working to tra- transform that. But that process is not overnight. That is a decades-long process because it took hundreds of years to create the conditions in which we live in. So in the meantime, while we're trying to dismantle systems, people still are being traumatized over and over in every possible way. They're being traumatized in school. Then they have their own kids who are also traumatized in school. And now they're also having another bad you know, uh, situation with education. They're being traumatized at work. They're not getting opportunities. They're not getting promotions. They're being traumatized with housing and lack of access to quality housing and affordable housing they're being traumatized health wise 14215 everything that's bad that you can measure is the worst in New York State in 14215 breast cancer hypertension infant mortality asthma etc etc education rates crime uh, crime statistics murder rates everything is the worst in 14215 so we can say like hey let's dismantle every system but that's a hundred years battle and let's do it but in the meantime, 100 years of kids are going through systems and going through trauma, and they got to make it. We need to equip them with the tools and the mental toughness and mental agility in order to make it through these difficult times so that they can go get a job, go to college, go to the military, and then come back and help 
while we're trying to dismantle systems, they're building houses. They're hiring other black people. They're opening businesses. They're making our community safer because what makes a safer community is more access to jobs and better education, not just more policing. Right. But what happens if a person doesn't exhibit the resiliency that you're calling for? I mean, not everyone is built that way. So I believe that resilience is something that can be learned. Some people believe that you're either born resilient or you're not. Um, I believe that people can develop resilience skills. So like when I train soldiers in the military, Mm -hmm. um, we have a way that we train soldiers and we start with the premise that everyone can learn to become more resilient. Um, Now, everybody's in a different place on like that scale of how resilient they are. But there are concrete tools like they're in in our trainings. There are things you can do in activities and works in in our workshops that if you do these activities, you will become more resilient. It's not a question. There's no question about it. Okay. Okay, So there are concrete things you can do to build resiliency. All right. And and if you do the activities daily, weekly, you will become more resilient now. That doesn't change the overall magic. It's not a magic wand that, oh, now I'm more, I've increased my level of resilience, so everything's all good now. I don't, no, still dealing with trauma, still dealing with strife, still dealing with tragedies. Time of tra- I was with these kids this weekend. One kid said, I had three brothers. All three of them have been murdered. Right? Wow. This is a 15-year-old wow. kid. He said, all three of my brothers have been murdered, and one was murdered in front of me. And so now... I'm afraid to go out the house because every so often someone will send me a picture of one of my dead brothers right after that they were killed. Right. And so this kid has to own that, wear that and consistently deal with the reminders and go to school every day. Right. So we can't just say to him, hey, we're trying to dismantle this system of oppression. So hang tight. Like, no, we need to arm this child with some type of support, some to get him with a therapist, help him build the thought processes to believe that he can be different. He can have more and at the same time work on dismantling it. So I don't think it's a it's an either or. Definitely not. You touched on the, the military and, and your training there and training other soldiers. Um, what brought you to the military? So I used to um, <laughs> my entire when I was in college, I was the elected student body president at my college, Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama. And so I was the student body president over fifty six hundred students. I was their leader. You know, I fought for students. And somewhere along the line, I started transitioning into local politics in Montgomery mm-hmm. um, because we had all these voters, all of these students. So issues that matter to us. We made it matter to the city. We end up suing the city of Montgomery to protect voting rights because at that time, former Confederate states couldn't move, make election changes without preclearance from the Department of Justice because they wanted to make they, they, the Supreme Court passed that decision because they didn't want Confederate states to you know go back to poll taxes, literacy tax, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so our city changed the election date without preclearance from the Department of Justice. So we sued the city. I gathered with students and other community leaders to sue the city of Montgomery to protect them from voting. Now, they weren't trying to do anything nefarious. So ultimately, in the midst of our lawsuit, we're doing depositions. The Department of Justice just gave them preclearance. So it just kind of dismantled our whole you know, thing. But what it did was it, it took me from a student who's looking at campus issues like, hey, let's get better housing or lower tuition to community issues, to voter access issues. And so in that moment, I decided I'm going to be an elected official one day. So I made choices in my life to build towards becoming an elected official. So in my history, in my study of history, all great elected officials 
uh, presidents, congressmen are largely either lawyers, uh, former lawyers or attorneys or veterans. And I didn't want to go to law school. So I decided to enlist and serve. And so in that service, what happened in 2012, we had more soldiers die from suicide than died in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so the military really ramped up their suicide prevention and their resilience programs. So they trained junior officers like me to become master resilience trainers. And I would go to different units to help soldiers build their mental toughness and mental agility. How do you rectify serving a country that has consistently either tried to enslave or eradicate or continue to make policy against black people? How do you rectify serving that country? Yeah, so, you know, I I reject the premise of that question. And so, you know, to me, and and this is not towards you, because I've been asked that before. So the, the, this question, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I want to be clear, this y'all radio show, right? <laughs> I am responding to Thanks. this question, not you as a person. But that's a stupid question, right? Because you could ask that same question to a fireman. You could ask that same question to a nurse. You could ask it to you as a broadcast. You on a station. I know the owner of the station is white. I ain't did no research, and I know the person who owned the station is white. And I bet it's a white man, right? And so knowing that every system in our country has been built off of prejudice, has been built off of racism, has been built off of oppression, that question could be asked to literally anyone in almost any job that's not a self-owned business, right? And so I reject the idea that's like, oh, I'm serving the oppressor by volunteering to be in the army. First of all, I didn't go overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. I didn't go to Russia. I served in the Army National Guard. So my duty was to protect the citizens of Alabama. So when a tornado ripped through Tuscaloosa, Alabama, me and my unit and the soldiers that I oversaw, we convoyed with our Humvees and LMTVs to Tuscaloosa to pull people out of the rubble. We went there to pull security from the looters who were breaking into the houses the houses that had been broke down. We were the ones to bring water and food to the firemen and the airmen and the nurses that were there on the ground doing their job. I had to keep count accountability of hundreds of police officers, firemen, airmen, and volunteers. That was my job. I was responsible as the S1 for accountability. So the idea that like, if you're in the military, you're you know, reinforcing 1776's ideas of what freedom is or not is, but you're a broadcaster on a station working for a white person who benefited from slavery. You're, uh, or somebody else is a journalist on a news station that's perpetuate the narrative that black men are vicious, angry monsters, right? Like the idea that any way you look at any part of this country has been fed and created by oppression, but no, the military is different. No, we all have a role to play and we all try to make where we are better. So like when I went to my unit and when I transferred units, I moved from Centerville, Alabama to uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, and I had it, my brigade was there. I walked into the brigade and there's a Confederate flag shrine. So there's like a, like a, imagine like a big picture frame mm-hmm. on the wall, but instead of a picture in there, it's every Confederate flag from the Confederacy, like a collage of them, right? And I walked by and I said, what? So I immediately 
called the IG of the Army, the Inspector General of the Army, and said, this got to go. So I walked in at 6 a.m. By 3.45, that shrine was gone. And every Confederate flag in the building that, you know, some people had on their hats or their book bags had been removed. So all we can do is do our best to serve other people and make every place we go a little bit better. The chairman of our board is a black man. Is it? Well, smack me in the face then. You know, not literally, obviously, but that, the point remains the same. You know what I mean? But that's, I mean, shoot, okay, WBFO, Toronto. All right, then. <laughs> Excuse me. But you get the point. That's activist, educator, Duncan Kirkwood. And we wind up today's program with WBFO's Dave Debo and the Reverend Diane Holt from the Durham AME Zion Church. Reverend Holt, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the invite. It is always an honor. I I know you're a modest person. And I know even before we started uh, this program, you said you don't want it to be about you. But you have done so much in the community that I think that means you have a lot of stories about the community. Uh, Business First. Uh, Tracy Drury wrote a nice article about you recently. Social worker, minister, nurse, child and family support services for the state. And then you added in hospital chaplain, registered doula, lactation consultant, trauma healer. (laughs) In all of the things you've done, is there a unifying theme? If it's not women's health, what is it? It's called HELPS, period. Okay. It's the Ministry of Helps. If you look at um, my background and my faith belief, that we should always have our hands on the pulse of any community that we're in. We should always be looking around, trying to figure out a way to help individuals because it is day now, but night shall come when no man can work. And you live in 14208. I live. I've lived, was raised, born, reared, raised my babies there. Everything that I do comes out of 14208. How's the neighborhood doing? <sighs> there are a lot of still frightened people over there. Um, there are a lot of angry people over there. There are a lot of people who are confused because they're not quite understanding what's going on. And and it's almost like things are not filtering back into the community that they should be filtering back into. Explain that last part. I'm surprised that you're saying these things still exist. Anger, confusion, uh, months. It's been a while since the shooting. But yet you're saying these things are still there. I feel it. Okay. I will never set foot in that market. I was going to ask you. The day that I live, I will not. Because think about this. There's two reasons behind I will not, two reasons behind why I will not set foot in that market. First of all, if you go to the book of Genesis, when Cain killed Abel, God heard of his deed from the blood of his brother before he got here. So blood does speak. And if you look at it from a scientific point of view, you can't get rid of blood. If you put aluminol down, that blood is going to pop up. It's going to tell you where it was spilled. Why would I want to walk on my family and my friend's blood? And you have friends who were in the shooting. Of course. Absolutely. Now, some of them are private, so I'm not going to say their names, okay? Because if I didn't ask, could I have permission to say who they are? I have church members who um, lost um, one of their family members in that church. I have um, friends whose son was um, shot and wounded. He probably will carry that bullet and those scars the rest of his life. Through the course of this program, we have talked off and on about some of the things that are inherent in the neighborhood. 
health disparities, social determinants of health, certainly part of the discussion. You concentrate a little bit on maternal health. And let let me read some numbers here. Low birth weight babies, 14% for blacks, 7% for whites. Late stage breast cancer, cases per 100,000, 41 cases per 100,000 for whites, 61 cases per 1,000 for blacks. Mm -hmm. Cervical cancer per 100,000 people, 6.8 cases for whites, 11.5 for blacks. Maternal health, there is a big disparity that you think we need to address. And I'm not a statistician. I just work. No, but you've worked as a nurse. You've oh, worked yes. as a doula. Yes. Your, your uh, stress-free zone, and we can talk about that, caters primarily to moms. Yes. You, you have seen this. You don't need the stats. No, I don't. Okay. And that's the problem with those who I have to deal with. I, I prefer to deal with the problem and the individuals who are going through those problems rather than keep their blasting numbers for them. You've got enough people out there who can keep those numbers. I know what's going on because I work with them each and every day of my life. I carry two phones. Who would have ever thought I would need to carry two phones? One's for my moms and one for personal. I do that so that we have ac- they have access to us 24 hours a day because life doesn't just stop because we close our doors and we're not open. Life continues for them and trouble continues for them. So... What do they come to the maternal stress-free zone for? Give, give me a list of the things that you do or the list of the problems they bring. When we were originally opened, we opened as Derm's Baby Cafe because right. this was not my goal, okay? This was not my goal. It was just a, one of the ministries the church did. Well, yes. It wasn't the church's ministry. The church didn't always support because they didn't always understand. All right. So I opened the 501c3 on my own. Okay. Okay. But now it's a ministry of the church, of course. But at that particular time, they didn't quite understand this wacko reverend. How did you sell it? What kind of things did you say? I I did it. Okay. Sometimes um, action speaks louder than words. All right. When you see the moms, plus we got pastors who would come through and they would see the tears and they would see the people healing and they would see the fact that what we were doing was what Jesus did. He fed them. You can't feed, you can't minister or talk or work with someone on an empty stomach. So we cook a meal, a hot meal for them or um, something that they can't afford to buy for themselves. Um, We'll get it for them and we'll bring it in. And we also introduce to them foods that they've probably never had before because there were a lot of moms who told me kids don't eat salads. And I have pictures and photo, videos of the children. I'll be like, is that salad good for you, baby? And they'd be, yeah. <laughs> so it's a counseling service. It's a food pantry or, or Meals on Wheels kind of program? Yeah, meals if you come in. We don't right. allow yeah, yeah, I hear We it. don't know if they have refrigeration and a lot of other stuff. We do now know what most of the mothers do because we were closed for two years because of COVID, so we had to go to places where angels dare to tread. And you do a lot of work with lactation and nutrition? Yes. And is it on a drop-in basis? It used to be until the murders. We have to lock our doors now. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to call when they get there, and I'm working on getting some type of system set up on the outside of the building where we can look in when we're in the dining area and see who's coming to our door. So much has changed. Um, and, and that was because one of the moms said to me one day, Reverend Hold, I'm not coming back because y'all got that open door, and people can come in there, and we there at night, and they wouldn't find us dead until the next morning. You got a point there, baby. So... 
In the meanwhile, in the interim, this is what we're doing. We're telling them, come, register online so that we know we're coming. And when you get there or while you're in your car, call. Or if you're in your Uber, call because we will Uber them, mm-hmm. some of them, not all. We don't have that kind of money. And call us and let us know, and someone will open the door for you and help you in with the babies. Talk about why all this is necessary. And I'm going to use the, the word racism. Absolutely. As I shared with um, the OBGYN doctors at UB um, during their grand rounds, everybody wants to talk about an elephant in the room. For African Americans, it's not an elephant in the room. It's a T-Rex, and it's devouring anything that's black and brown. How do you change it? Is it what you said earlier, just provide the services? And I, No, we I, have I, to be vocal. Okay. I tell everyone um, I am a activist, and I am an advocate. And we have to get the ears of those who can make the changes. And we have to do it so loud that they're embarrassed if they don't hear you. So let's put it in a clinical analogy. Um, (laughs) You treat the symptoms through your stress-free zone for the moms. Mm -hmm. You're treating the symptoms, but there's still a bigger disease out there? Is that a fair analogy? Absolutely, and it's called structural racism. Did you read Dr. Henry Taylor's book, The Harder We Run? Yeah, yeah, had him on here on the program to talk Ah. about it. Some of the stats that I referred to earlier about maternal health came directly from that report. And that's why I could nod my head to you. I read his book. All right. (laughs) But how do you battle it structurally? Is that just, again, putting it in a different context, but one from your background, is that just preaching to white folk? My job is not to teach the white folks. My job is to get white folks to teach the white folks. And I've got a lot of sisters who don't look like me who are teaching to their people. Tell me what that looks like. It's the most beautiful sight you've ever want to see in your life when you get people who are in high places listening to someone who don't have a Ph.D., okay, saying, she's telling the truth. We've got to correct that. So more whites need to hear more black stories about the Tyrannosaurus Rex in the room. Yeah. And that will do it? I I, I don't want to be naive. No, that will not do it because you're going to always have those who have in their heart that they have been shortchanged that, um, what is it called? The replacement theory, I think it's called. Yeah. That, That they believe that because we've got people in high places who sent that crazy garbage through the world. Do you combat it one person at a time through personal stories? Uh, I tell people again. I'm like that person walking on the beach throwing the um, starfish or the seashells back into the the ocean. And they go, why are you putting one in there? And I said, because it matters to that one. That's what we should be doing. Each one should teach one. Each and every person should be in a position where they're saying, ah, you know that's not correct. Come on, let's look at what the truth looks like. Will that propagate enough attitudinal change that the systemic stuff goes away? If enough of us do it. That's a lot of starfish. I know. But you're still willing to throw them back in the water. I'm still willing to throw them back in the water. The Reverend Diane Holt with WBFO's Dave Debo. Producer picks are highlights of our Buffalo's What's Next program, looking at racial issues that confront Buffalo after May 14th. 
Our discussion is Monday through Friday at 10 a.m., replayed at 9 each night, and available in podcast form on most platforms. Search for Buffalo What's Next or listen on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Thank you for listening.